0: Well, I'm again privileged to be here. To finish up a little bit last night, we talked about the use of cyanide in extracting gold from ore in the place of cyanide in what we think is clean water, but it's toxic to our inner being. And so I'm going to pass around pictures of ore that comes from... Red Lake, Ontario, the gold mines in Red Lake, Ontario, where my wife grew up. If you had a wheelbarrow load of that stuff, you probably could quit your job. Well, one of the evenings earlier in the week, we talked about the teapot and a little cup here. And I told you that I had more cups, and so here they are. All of us lives represent one of these cups. It's up to you. I will explain. Jesus, um, to somewhat, but... The scriptures in the Old Testament as well give many examples of us being pottery and being shaped on the potter's wheel. Now, most of us are not familiar. There may be some of you who are artisans and like to play with wet clay on a spinning wheel. And uh, there's a lady in our church that's looking for fulfillment in her midlife. And so she's starting to make pottery and bless her heart. I grew up on a farm in the west part of the county, and as little boys, there was a spot back in our field where there was lots of shards of broken pottery, and we'd go back there and scavenge and look for nice, pretty pieces, but there was a man there who went by the name of Potter John Heatwall, and I'm not to talk about him tonight, Uh, if you had Mr. Rank for a teacher... You know about Potter John Heatwall. But his pottery shop was in a field behind Samuel Garing's barn. We spent a lot of time there looking for salvageable pieces of pottery, but from the Civil War they blowed his place up, and the horses and the farm equipment had pretty much ruined anything that was of any value. I understand that Potter John made all kinds of crocks and little containers. And one of them, they referred to as a jelly jar. Maybe you have one. I would trade you one of these cups since he's in my family tree. But one of my cousins went to an estate auction and was going to buy one. And and the guy that took it home had to write a check for $1,200. That would have to be some really good jelly to justify that one. Isaiah has a verse here in Isaiah sixty four eight. Yet O Lord, you are my Father, and we are clay, and you are a potter, and we are all the work of your hand. And then Jeremiah eighteen. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, and so the potter formed it into another part pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. We are all the work of your hand. You know some. our projects don't work out and it said that you know god was working with us and it it wasn't looking good and then he took an opportunity to make us something beautiful he he started over on us that's such a a blessing to know that god doesn't just kick us off the wheel and we're done he wants to reshape us and then romans 20 yet But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who is formed? Why did you make me this? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Now, this is just free. It's not going to cost you a thing. I had an Amish brother explain to me from scripture why I should wear a beard. And I was wearing it before, but he was trying to really, and he used this verse, and he, but who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed of him say to him, I don't like what how you made me, and get up and scrape my face every morning. So, Philip, you're good. That Amishman didn't come talk to you, but, uh, He was really dead set on it. I want to tell you this evening that God owes none of us anything. But yet he is infinitely concerned about our good, our well-being, and our continued growth and spiritual maturity. God knows where you're at. He knows right where you're at. He hasn't forgotten you. And so I want to give some examples from teacups. I am a tea drinker. I learned that from my father, I guess. And while living in northwestern Ontario, I found out that the Canadians have better cuts of tea than the Americans. I think I told you that the other night. The British get the premium cuts. And it's I like Black tea, not these would-be herbal teas that some prefer. It don't have any caffeine in it. It don't do much for you. But back in 1984, when my when Grace and I moved back to South Carolina from northern Ontario, my dad, had been, he was still active in the farm at that point, and evidently the pioneer seed corn guy had given him a carfé in two mugs. And Dad kept the carfay, which was, he could keep his tea warm in, and he gave me the mugs, I guess, because they were too crude for him. I don't know. And the one of them disappeared. It was broken. But I used this mug every morning for my cup of tea, and I used it in the wintertime every evening for a cup of tea at bedtime. And I did a little calculations how much tea it holds, And I drank probably over 900 gallons of tea out of this cup. But as you can't see from there, but I can tell you it's got chips and dings. It's all stained inside. It's kind of nasty looking. And I thought to myself, I told Grace, that one day I need to retire that cup and get something to replace it. And so on an occasion, not long after that, We happened to be going to Red Lake, Ontario to see her parents. And we went by Detroit and did a little deviation to see her brother who lives in Kingston, Ontario. We had a little time there, and we went to the Henry Ford Museum. And you can get into the Henry Ford Museum, but you can't get out without going through their uh, trinket room, uh, tourist trap. And... While I was looking at the Henry Ford collectibles and memorabilia, I came upon this mug here, and I told Grace, this is the mug for me. It's got a proper handle on it. You know, you can grab it, and it holds enough. You know, it's not just a sip or two, and it's good and conservative like a black minister's cup, you know. and You know, Henry Ford said that the you can have a Model T any color you want as long as it's black. Well, he sells black mugs up there too. I used it for a while, but there was something wrong. It held more water than the tea bag did in here, and so the tea was weak. Now, I wouldn't have had to fill it this full, but how much fun is that to have a cup that's not full? And the other thing, it's black inside, and it made the tea look bad. Tea is supposed to be red in a cup, and it needs to be white. So you, And so something that don't look good don't taste good. And so I put this back on the cupboard and got this one back out. This cup represents the macho people. You know the, the people who uh, ego is bigger than Texas or they're insecure and they want to uh, demonstrate their security by the size of the pickup or the, how high the pickup is, or any number of things. And women can be that way too, but it's usually a guy thing, right. So we'll call this the Macho Cup. Well, I told you that I've drinking nine hundred gallons of tea out of this one, and i still good. This represents the useful cup. This cup is its mate. I don't know what happened to the first one, but I was in a state, another state one time, giving this demonstration to some young people. And I only had that cup, and a couple days later when I got home in the mail, this one showed up. I don't know who sent it to me, but somebody from Mississippi sent me a, a cup. Well, now we have this cup, and this is a pretty cup. And if you came to our house for tea, um, Grace would probably go to her little stash of cups and get out some kind of like this they're pretty they're beautiful somebody spent a lot of time painting now this one may have been stamped but the original was painted hand painted beautiful But well, there's a problem it's got about one snort in it and the handle is ridiculous i mean who ever heard of it may be okay for a lady's tea but no serious tea drinker would go for something like that But it is pretty. But you know, there's a lot of us that want to be the pretty cup. We want to be seen, we want to be noticed. And it's important that uh, we spend a lot of time on social media and and, uh, promoting ourselves and and, um, this glorious life that we think we want others to believe, but actually it isn't at all representative of reality and uh, we like to flit around and and be noticed. And so I'll ask you this evening, young people particularly, which cup represents you. And so I'm not going to do it tonight, but I often I ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes and raise their hands. How many want to be the macho cup and Most of the guys will be honest and say they want to be that cup. And how many of you want to be the pretty cup? And the girls, most of them will raise their hand. It's normal for girls to want to be pretty. God made you that way. But that's not your sole purpose. Then I'll ask them how many want to be the useful cup. And, you know, that's a big commitment. Because when we say we want to be the useful cup, we do not have the privilege to tell God how to shape us. And this cup is not all that dynamic. But the handle's big enough for a man and there's more than two swallows in here, it's very useful. And so I ask you this evening, what do you want to be? Where are you going with your life? It's up for you to decide. And now I'm going I, I'm, I'm done with this and so I'm going to go into my sermon and I'm going to try to move along so it don't take so well <clears throat> A couple of years ago I had the responsibility as the school board chairman to make sure that all of the staff was in place for the upcoming year. and Those of you who've been on school boards know how stressful that is sometimes to find all the teachers and have them in place in time for school to start. And for those of you who care, the title of what I'm going to share tonight is, Will You Make a Difference? And this was maybe more than a couple years ago. This was pre-cell phone era. And so I had the phone number of a young man that was in university. He had a lot of potential, I was told. And so I called his home phone, but he didn't answer. The dad answered. That was a bad sign from the first beginning. And I told him that uh, we had a teaching opportunity for his son. and, And would his son like the opportunity to Spread his wings a little bit and experience another subculture, perhaps a, um, a cornbread, collard green, field pea, and barbecue culture instead of whatever it was where they ate up north. And his daddy was very quick to come back. He's still gathering his tools. And uh, that's code for no. You want to know who that young man was? His name is Mr. Gehring, Mr. John Ralph Gehring. That was probably 20 years ago when he was James Madison. Uncle Jim didn't give me the time of day. And so many of us are, have been through the tool collecting stage of our life, but many of you are just entering or there now. You're in school. You're learning. And you're just determining what God has called you to, what He wants you to be. And it sometimes is kind of that foggy bottom, fuzzy experience. I really wish God would just tell me what He wants me to be so that I can go to school and collect those tools like Mr. John Ralph. Well, collecting your tools is very important, and uh, <clears throat> completing school is a good way to start. And then there's Bible school, and there's BS opportunities, a lot of things, so that you can grow and develop and become a pillar in the church. You know, one who is a doctor will need different tools than a farmer, and someone who is an electrician will need different tools than the plumber. And we all work together for the good of the whole. Some years ago, there was a very nice man in our community that had several Ford tractor dealerships. There are New Holland dealerships now, I think. And he would stop by on occasion and call on me from time to time. And out of loyalty to his brand, he always drove a white Ford pickup truck. And one day, he come driving in the lane and pulled up to the shop in this new Dodge Cummins. And I said, man, you, you sure are had a change of heart or hit your head on something? What's going on? And he said, well, I wanted to try it. I wanted to try it. And so I bought it, but I'm not happy at all. And I don't know how many of y'all have Dodge pickups at home, but that, it's not personal. He said, "Me and my wife... We took a drive over the weekend, and we drove four hours up to the mountains in the northern part of the state, up to Walhalla, to look at the leaves. And it took us about four hours to get up there, but it took us eight hours to get home. That thing glitched and locked in second gear, and we couldn't go but about 40 miles an hour. And I'm not happy. It wasn't happy. So when I got home, I took it to the Dodge dealership, and I says, here's your new truck. And it, it, it's not right. And so he said, pull the thing on into the bay. And he pulled it in the bay and told him to go over into a, a waiting room where clients wait for their vehicles to be fixed. And finally, this really shaggy kind of unkempt dude come out and pulled his pickup onto the ramp and put, <clears throat> opened the hood and looked at some things. And then he walked around over into a room and got a suitcase. And he came out with some wires and he plugged the suitcase into something by the motor. And in a little bit he left and went to another room and got a little box, a little part. Come out and changed a part and put the suitcase away and told the man that his truck was fixed. And so as he was driving out the driveway. He told the proprietor of the business, he says, boy, he said, you ain't got to know much to be a mechanic these days. He said, no, but you've got to have that suitcase. And so this evening, you need to have that little suitcase that God is going to fill with his tools for service for him. If you fill them with your tools. You're going to be hopelessly lost and frustrated all of your life. It does matter about the tools you collect. A proper education is important. And um, fellow, you're setting up here. If you ever had the commencement address at a graduation, you will one day there's one thing that you go to all these commencement addresses and all of you've graduated from high school and the guy gets up and he says, you can be anything you want to be and you can shoot for the moon and you can jump over the moon. And that's not so. I'm going to tell you right now that that's a myth. You will never be the queen of England. There's a whole lot of things you're never going to be. Don't even try. But extend your energy on things that count for eternity. And so I have a quote for the young people tonight, but it's good for us all and the children. You can learn it if you want. It goes like this. Our greatest fear should not be of failure but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Wesley, If you ever wanted to be a uh, NASCAR driver? And then you get to the pearly gates and you're standing there and you tell Gabriel or Peter why you should be in. I went in a circle faster than anybody else every Sunday afternoon. You should let me in. Or maybe you're a professional football player. You've always wanted to be a professional football player. Yeah, man, you tell the people up there when you get there, you know, I spent a lot of time. I was really good at what I did. I went around hugging men and knocking them down and rolling in the grass over a piece of leather. Our greatest fear should not be of failure but of succeeding or being good at things in life that have no eternal value that don't really matter. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord our God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. That was good advice 3,000 years ago, and it's still good advice tonight. You know, sometimes we need to be reminded how little we know or how much wisdom we lack to be able to learn. When I was younger, I had a job in Northwestern Ontario in the Aviation Department. My job was mostly to get the loads ready and help the pilots load the planes, fuel the planes, service the planes, and then go get more loads ready for the different mission stations. And uh, Grace's dad was my supervisor, and my sister was getting married in, at home, and so he said, over-freeze up. You can take enough time off a month to get your pilot's license so that when you come back, you can not only help load the planes, you can fly them. And so that's what I did. I don't recommend that, but I did it. It Took a month to get my pilot's license. At the end of the month, I had an appointment with the FFA official in Augusta, Georgia to determine if I had both the skill and the knowledge to earn my wings. I left my logbook with my logbook in hand with 39 hours, and you had to have 40 hours before you were capable of taking the written exam and the flight test. And so my instructor knew that I was living on $25 a month, a missionary salary. And so he says, you just fly that plane over to Augusta. And you just circle around until you get up to 40 hours and land and just taxi up to the office there and and meet with the FAA official and save yourself some money. He was really good that way and helpful. The problem was that I had bought a ticket to return to Red Lake, Ontario the next day. And so this was my judgment day. I couldn't make any mistakes. I had to be back in Northern Ontario to work the next day, and I couldn't redo this. I couldn't retake the test. The FAA official was pleasant enough, but somehow all those metals and stripes and tabs on his sleeves and pocket didn't put me at ease. And so we went into his office and he showed me a chair, and I sat down and he leaned over his desk and started asking me questions, and we went through the oral exam. I didn't know the answer to the first question. I didn't know the answer to the second question. And the third question, I didn't have a clue. And then he reached over into his map drawer and pulled out a drawer and opened up, got some maps out, and he began to drill me about controlled airspace, about military airspace, and uncontrolled airspace. And he just as well started asking me about outer space because he lost me. And he kind of sighed and wiped his brow and folded his maps and put them back in the drawer. I was sure that I bombed the oral exam. And then he said, let's go fly. And I just couldn't believe that Here, he was going to take me for my flying exam but I totally wiped out on the oral on the oral exam, and so I did my pre-flight and and went flying with him and to see if I was proficient in demonstrating my flying skills. I was as nervous as a polecat. I didn't I couldn't understand why we were doing this part if I had totally wasted the first part. After a while, he told me to land, and and the taxi back up to his office, and he leaned over and said, congratulations, you did a good job. He says, come on in here, and I'll fill out your paperwork. And I sat down by his desk, and again, he leaned over to me, and he says, you know why I ask you all those questions that you didn't know? I said, no, sir. I wanted to demonstrate to you how much you have yet to learn. Because people that think they know a lot and know everything get themselves killed. He's right. And so he wanted to, to take any of this kind of cup away from me and just give me this broken. one. Let me know that life is about adding to and about learning and about humility. And that cocky people get themselves killed literally and spiritually. 1 Timothy four 12, We're exhorted to live our lives in such a way that we are a godly example of youth and that we should live our lives without great remorse and regret. I saw a farm, um, I used to get a cotton magazine and there was a cartoon in there and there was this old, farmer laying on the hospital bed with hose pipes hooked everywhere and monitors bleeping on the wall. and His widow was sitting in a chair over by the crossing the bed dabbing tears with her hanky. And the man, he rallied and kind of sat up in his bed and leaned forward. And he says, you know, I, I wish I would have planted more cotton. You know that's not so. When you and I are on our sickbed or departing this life, we're not going to say, I wish I would have planted more cotton. I wish I'd have bought a Ford pickup with bigger wheels and a higher lift kit and more jewelry than that old Chevy I had. I wish I'd have eaten out more. I wish I had a bigger house. You know, I wish I'd have moved to Sarasota, Florida and played church league ball and won that volleyball tournament down there, you know? Why then do we concern ourselves so much with that stuff here and now? That's not gonna be what concerns you when you meet your maker. Now, when I was in the fourth grade, I broke my elbow. I broke it really, really bad and uh, I was in the hospital over there in the children's ward for a couple of days, and, and they kept telling me, we, we've never set one like that. It broke the bone out the back, and, and we may have to break it again. Well, never tell some child that. It hurt already just to think of them guys was going to break it down over their knee again and reset it. But Ever after that. I was not very good at baseball. I loved softball, and um, but I would swing at the ball where my eye told me it was, but the bat wouldn't connect. And so I went from being having a good RBI to a good strikeout, and a lot of other things. And then on Monday mornings we'd go to. For phys ed, the teachers would get somebody to pick teams, you know, and and so they would, guys would pick all the, they would pick two students and the guys would pick all the, the best boys and then they'd pick the old order girls and then they'd pick me. And so <clears throat> this is the story of my life. It seems that I, well, let me, let me go back. How many of you are school teachers? All right. Do me a favor and do your students a favor. If you need to pick up teams every Monday morning for the week or the month or whatever, uh, you take your captains and you go in the corner there and you pick up the teams and come out and announce them. And don't humiliate that poor little McCartney. That gets picked last week after week after week. It's discouraging. Okay, I'm just just a little pointer there. I seem to habitually break my limbs from time to time. And then after my accident this summer, I'm up to 19 broken bones. So uh, thank God for healing. But our church is divided into small groups and once a month we our small groups do something on a Wednesday night it may be a cottage meeting or something and one evening the group that I was in uh, the leader asked another group to meet at the school to play volleyball and man I don't need to play volleyball anymore I don't I'm this guy I don't need to play volleyball and bang balls down some girl's throat I'm done with that but um <clears throat> There was a little lady about the size of my wife across the net from me. And I don't know that she'd broken any arms, but she was tearing me up. It was embarrassing. She had eight children, and she was up banging that ball. And and I have these broken arms that are just kind of uncoordinated. But, you know, it didn't bother me anymore. I wasn't 16 or 20. And I think there's things that I can do that she couldn't. And so I got over it. But when you're in your teen and 20 years, these kind of things can really bother you. They're real. And there's a lot of things I won't go into. I don't have time. But, you know, your friend's phone rings and, and she gets a date and yours don't. And you wait and you wait and you want companionship, too. Or maybe it's a young man that gets rejection over and over again. And it's so painful. If you could just have what she has or he has. I want to tell you tonight that God knows where you're at. Does God have a plan for your life? And if he does, can I trust him? And then along with that, are you willing to allow God to choose your plans and dreams in that big dumpster of things that you want, but God don't want? A lot of our most important and prized things will end up in the dumpster of life. People collect and collect and spend money, and they're not all bad in themselves, but they all end up in the dumpster i don't have pictures here you don't have a projector but i often show pictures of the dreams that i had when i was in my late teens and 20s some of them were realized i loved aviation i loved to fly and seaplanes in particular and I was able to fly in northern ontario and I thought it would be glamorous to be a bush pilot, but you know, I'm 66. I'm not doing anything now that I wanted to do when I was 20. Nothing. I spent 40 years trying to steal milk out of big hairy animals, and it's dangerous. It's not very glamorous. And then I was ordained to church leadership, and, and I don't have an airplane. And a, but you know, looking back, it's what God chose for Grace and I, and it's been a good life. Not what we thought, but it's what God chose for us. And some of it was very painful. How many of you all know about Robert Frost? Okay, Mr. Rank introduced you to Robert Frost. I'm going to read one of his stories. You're familiar. The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I'm sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, and then took the other just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning lay equally, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how ways lead on to way, I doubt if I'll ever be back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two worlds diverged in a wood and I, my parents disciplined me and it has made all the difference. Is that the way Robert Frost wrote it? Carol, what did he say? I took the one less traveled, but it really does help if your parents disciplined you, you're way ahead And so my life has been a lot of the one less traveled. I didn't end up getting to do the things that I wanted to do, but I'm happy. I'm content. Uh, I'm going to skip some stuff here. I don't want to hold you all late tonight. Um. I want to affirm to you that God does have a plan for your life. And David, the shepherd boy, is an example. He thought that he would be a shepherd. He thought that he would be uh, the man that um, took over his father's flocks and maybe add a little irrigation here and a little better grapes there and get a new breed of rams to get nicer, fluffier lambs. But God chose otherwise. David became king and he started preparing him for that opportunity and for that service when he was out there killing lions and bears with those little sheep. Is that how you prepare a king? That's how God did it. David probably thought, why is he calling me to be a king when I want to be a shepherd? And so Sometimes it's parents that stand in the way of the call of God on their young people. I know, uh, I've met parents who refuse to let their children go into V.S. Need to make money. Need to get ahead, get a good start. I want to tell you tonight, there will be plenty of time in your life to go into debt. Plenty of time. Don't rush to go into debt because then while you're making those snowboard payments, you can't go into V.S., Unless you, sell, unless you sell that awesome snowboard. Uh, I don't know what else to use, what toys. I had a student in Bible school one time from a northern community, a very wealthy community, Anabaptist community in northern Indiana. And he was making $3, 000, over $3,000 a month's take home. And he was up to his eyeballs in credit card debt and living at home free. I couldn't believe it. But boy, did he have a lot of toys. In 1976, I went west with a custom harvester. And I went with Jay Smith, some of y'all remember him, and John Shank. I seldom see them anymore. Uh, We went different roads. Robert Frost, okay? But we were together back then. It was a carrot and stick type of thing. The longer you stay, the better the pay. And there was incentive because a lot of people got tired of that grueling, dirty work, and they'd go home and leave the man sat. And so 1976 was a long time ago. And at the end, our pay peaked at over $100 a day. I still don't make that kind of money. And so I did the calculations that comes out with inflation to $457 a day. How many of y'all make that? Not even you chicken farmers? Probably. You're getting close. Okay. (laughs) But it was set up that way. There needed to be incentive to work all day in the dirt a long ways from home. And so it was loaded toward the end. Well, that winter, I was eating lunch with my parents. I was out of school and I was kind of deliberating what I should do. And the boss called and asked me if I wouldn't come back in the spring and be his foreman, his crew boss, and more money. And I was over the moon. This was a confirmation of God's plan for me. I was 21. I could... Um, theoretically, I could do what I wanted, right? Sort of, legally maybe. And I got off the phone and I told mom and dad, hey, that was uh, Adam Noose. He wants me to come back and be his, uh, crew boss. And my dad, he wasn't into it. His countenance kind of fell. I I couldn't get it. What? You see, my dad saw my love for adventure and money, and it concerned him, his father's heart. And he didn't say, thou shalt not, or no, you can't, but he pled with me to consider another alternative, and that was V.S. And you know that thing of living a life of poverty wasn't on my list of things to check off. Um, I'll also let somebody else do that one and i'm not going to tell you the story i don't have time but through god working on my heart and a lot of uh sweaty nights in bed i surrendered and i spent seven very productive years in a very cold and dark and far away place and look at my pretty wife he gave me on the bonus so I want to confirm that God does have a plan for you. It won't be like mine and it won't be like your sisters or your brothers, but he does have a plan. Search for it. Surrender to it. Uh, I touched on this a little bit the other night. Christ admonishes us to beware of the deceitfulness of riches. But somehow as I... Observe my temptations and by the actions of lifestyles of my fellow Anabaptist people, somehow we don't take Christ's challenge and admonition on wealth as seriously as I think we should. One of the words that Jesus often uses in describing his ministry is the word compassion. And we can get that from the Sermon on the Mount and also in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter nine thirty six. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And Jesus in his parables uses lots of examples of reaching out to others just to make a difference. And in Luke, we have the story of the Good Samaritan. And it says, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Do you have compassion for people? Do you care enough to stop and help someone? To alleviate someone's suffering, to give them medicine, care, and food, and then pay for it like that Samaritan man did. Something is wrong in our society, in our Anabaptist society, When acquiring wealth, material assets, scoreboards, athletic achievement, the biggest buck, or that pimped out vehicle, or vast wardrobes of apparel, or an unbalanced desire for pleasure and the need to be entertained is what motivates us and keeps us pumped. We need revival, if that's where we're at. When the values of those not investing in spiritual and eternal impress us rather than those who have sacrificed much, served honorably and well for the cause of Christ, we have a heart problem. And so I ask you young people tonight, do you care enough to make a difference? Do you care about the hungry in many parts of the world to give, to share and to serve? Do you care about the tribes of unreached with the gospel, those who have no word from the God and his plan of salvation in their language? Do you care about the many children born into broken and dysfunctional homes in our broken, messed up society? Do you care enough to surrender your time and resources, your future, to make a difference in the kingdom of God? Could you give some time and voluntary service teaching, missions. How do you see the people that God brings into your life? Do you see them as a burden, a distraction, or someone that you and I can teach and show the love and compassion of Christ? What will your and I generation be remembered for? Many or most of us have ancestors who were persecuted in prison for their faith. Some were burned at the stake. Others were boiled in pots of oil. Is our Anabaptist movement still known for its passion for God and its kingdom? Or are we known for our nice farms, trade skills, storage barns made by the Mennonites, or pies and other food items? Is it possible that we could be loving our culture more than the kingdom of God? And so... Most of my life, this is not a slam against Pennsylvania. I just need to, sorry ma'am. It's spent south of Pennsylvania in the west, my teaching. But not long ago, I had several revival meetings up there. I've never really been there, but I cannot count the times that people have asked me if I've ever been to Shady Maple. Or if you travel to Sarasota, Florida. Have you been to Yoders or Troyers? Or uh, I think it's now called Der Dutchman. Or if you're from the Anabaptist settlements in Ohio, and their train of chain of Mennonite watering holes, is this the calling of Anabaptist people? D.L. Moody says this. It is clear you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raised some good points, frankly. I don't sometimes like the way I'm doing evangelism either. But I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And so I want to commend you all for coming here and being light and salt in East Harrisonburg. We're doing the same at an old Methodist church in the out back in poor part of Bamberg County. Have we been real successful? We've tried. There's not a lot of unreached people there, but yet we have been confirmed over and over again that the community has been blessed by us being there, and they've pled for us not to leave. I don't say that. Put a feather in my head. Galatians six ten. As we have opportunity, especially unto those who are of the household of faith. Learn to develop a conscience against heaping so many resources on yourself when so many have much need. A couple of years ago our boys all came home. They'd been here and there in VS and missions and they all wanted to farm. Well, I wasn't old deep pockets and but the boys came home and and they wanted to get married. And you know, I, I know that feeling. I wanted to get married too one time. And so here they all were home. I couldn't blame them. <clears throat> So after much prayer and counsel from others, we decided to build a new dairy facility to accommodate the needs of several growing families and transition to the next generation. And soon after, or during that time of completing that building project, I was often asked by many or referred to as the man who built a new dairy barn And I got so weary of it. Couldn't I be known as Noah of old that Carl was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time and he walked with God. Build a dairy barn? Who cares about that? I have a dream that one day the people, young people of our churches will be known for their commitment to missions and sacrificial service to others instead of sporting events, tournaments, and the price and quantity of their toys, learn from an example lived and shown to them by their mothers and fathers. Remember, our greatest fear should not be of failure but of being succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And I want to close with a story. And this story is told by a grandmother to Helen Rose Pauls, Russian Mennonite people. What a legacy for a father to bestow on his children and the generation that follows after him. My father was such a man, warm, kind, and loving and honest, principled and hardworking. And being the oldest of six children, and although I was a girl, I was his right-hand man on our prosperous estate on the Russian steep. Together we rode across the fields, surveying the crops, organizing the duties of our hired labor. He was just and kind to our workers. And on those trips, he would share with me his sound advice. Now, Katie, he often spoke when he noticed my pride, don't look at your face and your outward appearance. Make sure that your heart is right with God. And when we sold our grain in the fall, Father deliberately put just a little more into the sack than was necessary. No one would accuse him of dishonesty. Too much rather than too little, he said. And sometimes in the spring, the poor of the village would come to our back door to buy food when our winter supply was exhausted when their own winter supply was exhausted and he always gave them much more than they paid for his attitude was one of gratitude and thanksgiving to god he was always willing to share often father encouraged me to memorize scripture and reviewed the verses with me A day may come one day when the written word, he said gently, will be gone. I noticed a pensiveness on his face, and I could not imagine such a day. Life would surely go on like this forever. I would undoubtedly marry a landowner's son. Our children and our children's children would continue to flourish on the limitless rich soil of the Ukraine. In peace and joy, we would raise them in our close Mennonite community with the church as its focal point. But sadly, the tables turned. The Father's ideals went against a new and accepted order. There was no God. There was no ownership. It was every man for himself in an atmosphere of mistrust and brutality. One morning, there was the dreaded knock, and it came to our door. Our whole family was rudely bundled into a wagon. My parents hardly had time to pack a few bedrolls, cookware, and a little food. And at the command of the Russian officers, the horses pulled away and carried us away from our ancestral home. His impassive face embodied all that we now feared in Soviet Russia. We looked back at our impressive estate, rooms full of fine oak furniture, barns full of pedigreed cows and horses. The orchard was drooping with sweet fruit, and we never saw it again. Thirteen families from our area were similarly disposed. The mounted guards with their long sabers. We were herded into freight trains and eventually reached Siberia. Our exile was a reality. The written word was indeed a thing of the past. And we were set to work without food or shelter, felling trees and cutting logs for export. We were at the bottom of the criminal ladder. Huge quotas had, were hard to fill on an empty stomach. And somehow we found the ingredients for soup, nettles, mushrooms, tender shoots, bark, and small animals. And I watched Father change from a robust and ruddy-faced man to a bedraggled skeleton. He was not quite 40. But his faith in God was unwavering. Finally, hope for a life, better life on earth died. We will perish here, he said. Katie, you and Maria are still young and stronger. We were 19 and 18. Perhaps you can escape and somehow reach our relatives in the south. And he reviewed the directions and addresses with me until I had committed them to memory. And we prepared for flight. We were very weak physically, but my parents gave us what little food there was and made us ready. We prayed together one last time. And my father gave each of us a blessing, much like the fathers of the Old Testament. Tenderly he placed his hand on our heads. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord be gracious unto thee. The Lord make his countenance to shine upon thee and give thee peace. And we all went together and embraced one last time. And he was torn between seeing us starve in the wilderness and seeing us leave at the mercy of a Siberian winter. And a Russia he could no longer understand. Father was weak, but he walked along beside us with the aid of a tree branch to send us off. And as we walked out into the night, each star seemed strange and ominous. We were deliberately breaking the law for the first time in our lives, and we felt like common criminals father could not continue after three kilometers and we stopped to bid him one last goodbye he took leave of us now children he said as the tears streamed down his cheeks remember that you have praying parents in the forest and if we never meet again here we will meet in heaven my last sight of him i will never forget He leaned on his cane, his body shaking with loud and terrible sobs as the tears flowed to the ground like water out of a pitcher. I had never seen him weep. Slowly we turned and began to walk. The stones could have cried out and the mountains covered us. His agony could still be heard as we walked further and further into the night. I never saw him again. Years later, I heard that he had taken to his rough bed after returning to our family at the slave labor camp. And it did not take long for death to overtake him. His spirit was broken. Eventually, I did make it to freedom. I often miss my father profoundly, but somehow he lives on. The rich heritage of goodness and integrity has been passed down to generations. And I see him in the patience and gentleness of my sons with their children. And sometimes I catch a glimpse of him when I observe the stability and calm demeanor of my grandchildren. And as the baton of the Christian walk is passed on to yet another generation, it gives me peace. God bless you young people.